1: Welcome back everyone to another episode of New Books Network. My name is Lee Pierce, she, they pronouns, and I am super thrilled after many, many email attempts to finally have on the line Jeremy Glick, who has written one of my, has to be one of my favorite books of recent memory, and it is titled The Black Radical Tragic, Performance, Aesthetics, and the Unfinished Haitian Revolution. So, this book is just a dearth of theoretical material, aesthetic performances, plays, old and new, cross-cultural, international, Black radical political theory. I, I can't even, it's everything that I could ever want. <laughs> I think I love the list on the cover, right? Performance, aesthetics, and the unfinished Haitian Revolution. Gives you like a, an oversight of how intersectional and interdisciplinary this book is. And so essentially, the book returns to the Haitian Revolution as essentially unfinished in the sense that chronologically it's over, quote unquote, but that it's an inspired site of investigation for many artist activists, and activist intellectuals to return to over and over and over again, to rethink the African diaspora. So in the book, Glick examines 20th century performances, or what he calls sometimes the long 19th century, engaging the revolution as laboratories for political thinking asking readers to consider the revolution less as a fixed event than an ongoing open-ended history resonating across the work of Atlantic world intellectuals. And so some of the names toured in this book, and of course proper names become itself a site of interrogation in the book, but we have work explored from Lorraine Hansberry, Sergei Eisenstein, Edward Glissant, Malcolm X, many others. And ultimately, uh, the, the, the central speculative point is the encounter between Bertolt Breck and C.L.R. James, reconsidering the relationship between tragedy and revolution. In its grand refusal to forget the black radical tragic demonstrates how the Haitian Revolution has influenced the ideas of freedom and self-determination, another fraught term in the book, that have propelled black radical struggles throughout the modern era. And so with that, I would like to welcome Dr. Glick to tell us more about this book and how it came to be. Uh, Jeremy, are you there? Yeah. Hey. Awesome. And can I call you Dr. Glick?
0: yeah whatever jeremy's great. whatever
1: jeremy's great okay cool yeah, you can call me, yeah. me lee all right well Hi, it's lee. so terrific to have you you're um not that far away down downstate in new york and i just this book it feels like it should have been four books so the fact that anybody could write something like this i'm really really astonished so tell us more about you your deal you know academic non-academic what you're doing for fun during covid whatever strikes your strikes your fancy and then um, how the book came into existence, and also maybe a little bit more about the central themes, including why you chose tragedy as the genre of choice, how you put together this particular group of activist artists, and what you see as some of the main contributions of the book.
0: Yeah, I mean, thank you so much. You know, I'm a big fan of this podcast. I think I had told you when we were preliminary discussing that I listened to it a lot to the psychoanalysis channel. So when I got your invite, I was like super stoked because this is one of a few podcasts I try to you know religiously listened to um yeah i mean i think the way that, i mean this book kind of like took like 15 years to write because uh, i took a while to write my dissertation because i was involved in political things and how to deal mm-hmm. with family tragedies and and then i also um rewrote most of it in our pr- pretty long tenure clock which is like seven years at hunter mm-hmm. college um I think it's an aggregate of ex- one's experiences and in intellectual itinerary. So if you don't mind, I can tell you a little bit about Rutgers in the 90s.
1: Sure, uh, let's hear I it. Did, yeah, that sounds awesome.
0: I did my undergrad and my PhD there. So um, I was a double major in all sense of the word. Like I was a literature and Africana studies major at Rutgers uh. in the mid-90s. And um, I was also very politically involved uh, with the sort of radical student movement, particularly the sort of Black left. Um,
1: and Rutgers is in Jer- New Jersey, right? Yeah, it's in okay. Jersey. Just checking. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like what happened was is that in Africana studies, there were like a bunch of tendencies. I mean, some of our professors were, were, were kind of in like lineages of Black feminism. Um, one of my mentors, Ivan Van Sertema, was was a kind of Afrocentric historian of trying to talk about the sort of myriad complexities of like African antiquity. And then there was the sort of the Swahili teachers uh, were kind of like pan-Africanist, anti-imperialist, socialist thinkers. One had a background in bi- biology, but he was interested in all those things in terms of intellectually, the so biologist. And the other, uh, Malimu uh, Ibrahim Sharif, was a scholar of the Swahili, who was a social scientist, but he really, um, he, he, he had as a monograph on Swahili poetry and, So you're getting like this sort of Afrocentric antiquity with a real political bend and also been sort of a, you know, not only was the, they came before Columbus guy, but he was also our Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man teacher. So we spent one or two weeks on one chapter. And then you're getting the anti-imperialist, like kind of pan-African internationalist, um, you know, flavor from Sharif and uh, Professor Olabai. And then in English, you know, and this is true now still, but certainly then, uh, Rutgers was sort of epicenter of African American literary studies. Um, one um, one of my teachers was Donald Gibson, who was uh, wrote some of the um, early, you know, critical studies on African American poetics and and, and novelists. Uh, one of my you know beloved teachers, who sadly has recently uh, transitioned, Professor Cheryl Wall. With, uh, was a was an, a very accomplished um, Zora Neale Hurston scholar and and and, and theorist and in uh, uh, in terms of Black feminist scholarship, um, and then there was younger generations that came in, people like uh, Professor Brent Edwards and Carter Mathis and Evie Shockley uh, and Abena Busia. Um, there was this critic uh, Wesley Brown, the great novelist and playwright, was my first Afro-Emlit teacher. So you have and then at the same time in the english department there were great marxist scholars and marxist brechtian feminist scholars so there's this really like there's this wonderful and at the same time a lot of my friends were doing political organizing in newark uh uh, gravitating around um the the baraka house and i developed a very close you know relationship with, with amiri baraka to the extent that I was part of the political organization that he was at the helm at, which was called Unity and Struggle, which was... You
1: actually, and you actually dedicate the book to Baraka, don't you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I dedicated it to Vansertima Baraka and my father. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, you know, so I was in Unity and Struggle for like almost two decades with Baraka at the helm. So, you know, I did my PhD, what I was thinking about doing was my PhD in African-American literature. Um, and specifically, since I had a kind of philosophical and political bent, um, you know, really learning Marxism through the likes of, like, Walter Rodney and Angela Davis and, you know, the, almost the entire pan-African movement that, at least that wasn't, you know, in cahoots with the CIA. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, I had thought that I wanted to write a dissertation on Uh, Black Radical Thoughts Relationship to Hegel. And as I remember it, all of my case studies, uh, C.L.R. James, um, I think I wanted to look at Robert Septo's sort of narrative theories of Afro-American literature. Um, I wanted to look at uh, this sort of kind of the philosophical like wing of the Black Panther Party discourse specifically around Huey P. Newton. Obviously, I wanted to look at um, Angela Davis's work. I wanted to look at the Lord Bondsman or Master Slave dialectic through the lens of, um, you know, uh, Frederick Douglass's, you know, uh, physical encounter with with Covey. Um, anyway, my point is is that like a lot of my examples were all having to do with the Haitian Revolution, and my advisor said, hey it looks like you're writing about the Haitian Revolution. Um, So that's really how it happened. And in terms of like what sort of motivated me was I got extremely frustrated with like two things that seem like they're on opposite poles, but I, I think that they're compliments. One was I got really, really frustrated at people pretending that black revolutionary nationalists and their intellectual and artistic traditions weren't concerned with class and didn't mm. have deep, deep anti-capitalist commitments. Yeah. Um, you know, and then at the same time, on the other side, I got really, really frustrated with people who were sort of fast and loose to evoke and dismiss Marxism as somehow a kind of Eurocentric construct when everything I learned about Marxism was, was through um, de- decolonization struggles and through mainly, you know, African diasporic thinkers. Um, So my idea was to sort of, you know, bring those two sort of commitments together because they gel with the like actuality of my experience as a political organizer and my intellectual itinerary as someone sort of bifurcated between a kind of social science philosophy and philosophy of religion Mm
1: -hmm. emphasis
0: in Africana studies um, and also a real uh, global African diaspora emphasis in terms of. You know, our key Swahili teacher would teach us Marx, like, to, you know, to make it into a formula. And then at the same time, um, African American literary studies, and then the other things that I was interested in as an undergrad, which was, you know, cultural materialism, a la the work of Samir Amin, Raymond Williams, um, Spivak, you know, scholars that would, like, bring you closer to Marxism. And I was in... uh, of a Marxist organization, you know? So I was introduced to the work of Cedric Robinson in grad school and it's the really important um, legacy or, or rather interlocutor. But for me, like the black radical tradition as being some sort of critical engagement, counter engagement with Marxism, that was just only thing I had known. So, you know, I, my teachers were rightfully having us engage with the black radical tradition and i was thinking more like oh the philosophical and aesthetic annals of black liberation movement thought so that's how i really came down to it um and then i had thought that it was really really interesting that bertol brecht someone i was really really interested in someone you know baraka and Gugiwatiango always you know pushed and talked about um That Bertolt Brecht and James, James has such a a capacious grasp. I mean, he writes about everything, and it seems like he knew everyone. And yes, they were on sort of different, uh, they had different wavelengths in terms of their Marxist politics and the sort of party politics, but I thought it was very, very bizarre that there was no record of of them talking to each other, and also there was no record of uh, James writing about Brecht or Brechtian Marxist aesthetics and his, you know, volumes of volumes of of archive and and scholarship. And, Mm -hmm. you know, his papers were at Columbia, so I could really, really, you know, I did my best to try to verify that. So, I mean, that's kind of where you go. So when I wrote this dissertation, it was Imitations I Can Use, which comes from the Malcolm X Hamlet. Well, it, well, Imitations I Can Use is now, the the sort of foreground here, but the title was Taking Up Arms Against the Sea of Struggle, which was the Hamlet line that Malcolm talks about at the Oxford Union. And the two interlocutors, the framework was a conversation between Raymond Williams and C.L.R. James, which actually happened. Mm. And when I was at Hunter College for the six years of my tenure clock, you know, partially also reflecting what I was teaching and input from students, I kept the Williams right, but reworked the framework as a sort of speculative conversation between Berthold Brecht and um, C.L.R. James, with Raymond Williams in the background as a way to sort of open up this thing. So that's really how this came along. I mean, I had a, a dissertation advisor who was kind enough to point out the obvious that, like every time <laughs> I thought I was talking about Hegel and Black radicalism, I really was talking about the Haitian Revolution, and then I just you know, I, I, I just, I went with that because he's wise and, and it made sense.
1: Well, and I think it, I think it raises a really interesting point because, he, you know, as like a, as an academic and an activist, you kind of get two types. I mean, this is totally reductive, but you get two types of activist response to academia. And one is that it's helpful. And the other is that, no, it, your theories don't help us on the ground. And so one of the arguments you kind of make in this book throughout all of these, what you call mediations between these different figures who many, some of whom never even talked like, like James and Brecht, right? You're, you're kind of putting them in conversation in ways that we hope, we wish that we had like a recording of them actually being in this conversation. You're doing that work at an intellectual and, a, and an activist level. But you say that returning to Haiti over and over again, the Haitian revolution through different thinkers and different artistic performances, some of whom aren't always necessarily talking about the Haitian Revolution, but you pick up traces of that legacy in their work, that every time we do that, it becomes like a new way of imagining Black revolution, imagining Black radical politics. And that in fact, like this theoretical work is the work of politics because politics gets sedimented and regimented and ossified at some point, you say, and it's only through these artistic reimaginings That happen chapter after chapter in the book that you keep seeing the same tensions of politics coming up. And one thing you say, and I'd love to hear more about this, is you start the book by saying we have this kind of outdated trend of the question. So for people that are familiar with um, like political history, you you get a lot of like the question, the woman question, the Jewish question, and you kind of say we we laugh at it as this like trend. But what if politics were a questioning practice? And that sort of kicks off the beginning of the book. So do you want to say more about that in terms of like how you see the book intervening and what I might call the common sense we have about politics, especially black politics?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, let me just say in terms of, uh, you know, the thing about Haiti and, and this thing about reigniting a certain kind of radical impetus and a sort of spirit of critique every time you evoke it, even if my sources only evoke it a little bit. I mean, this might be a little too on the nose, but in in Guevara's, in Che Guevara's 1967 call to the organization of solidarity with the people of Asia, Africa, Latin America, you know, also referred to as the tricontinental, he famously says, create two, three, many Vietnams. Right. And my sense was, is that, you know, so much of of issues of of, of statecraft, of um, issues of revolutionary violence of issues between leadership and base, and the dialectic between leader and base, uh, the, the, the tension between a sort of uh, ground-up and, and top-down revolutions, uh, the use of force, the use of strategy and tactics. To me, in the new world, the Haitian Revolution is a sort of uh, antecedent for so many of those 20th century struggles. I mean, so much so that, like, like Sibylla Fisher, when she talks about different agrarian schemes in her work on Haiti refers to certain leaders, uh, uh, early leaders, uh, agrarian schemes as sort of Stalinist, right? And this is one mm-hmm. part that I talked about in the book, because I thought that was really, really interesting, because it's this tension that, like, these problems are arising so much earlier in terms of the 18th century. Um, but but the, the name that we talk about to access them uh, comes from, you know, this history that I'm, very much engaged with, which is, you know, this sort of 20th century um, Marxist revolution movements. And also C.L.R. James, who's like my main figure in the, in the text, his sort of modality of a tragic writing in terms of, um, and also, uh, for lack of better words, montage in terms of the Black Jacobins, his history, and, and to some extent his play, is he's triangulating More than triangulating, I guess, because there's more than three, but the French Revolution, yeah, the Russian Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, with his contemporary commitment initially, which is the armed decolonization of Africa, Mm -hmm. and then when he rewrites it, um, as per, you know, the work of David Scott shows, um, thinking about, you know, federation and the disillusionment around Caribbean federation. So, I mean, yeah, like in terms of the notion of the question, that was a way for me, again, to like keep the question. I'm interested in my sense of like a Hegelian dialectic, for lack, lack of better words, that you know, you have one thing, you have okay. the opposite, you bring them together, that's a synthesis, but the synthesis never happens. Yeah. So right. I'm interested in open ended. I'm interested in open-ended revolution that keeps repeating, and repeating, and repeating, and yeah. keep you know building upon contradictions to get to another place. Um, yeah. So for me, um, you know, if you have a historical event and then you have revisiting it through theatrical, philosophical, sculptural, painting, uh, symphonic adaptation, there's a way in which um, the aesthetic. Extends the shelf life of that event that we periodize beginning here and ending here. Yeah. Uh, and then also gives you intellectual resources, right? Because all of those artistic meditations on the Haitian Revolution address topics that are still germane today. What should be the rela- relationship between leadership and base? What is the sort of calculus of force and counterforce and violence and moments of insurrection? Um, how do we Uh, deal with uh, the good and the bad that comes with state sovereignty. I mean, all of those things were not worked out to their completion. I guess my point of the book is that there is no such thing as completion. You know, and and that's another thing I get really tired of with, with like fast and loose dismissal of Marxism because it's not fast and loose dismissal of Marxism. It's fast and loose dismissal of misreadings of Marxism that see it as a sort of narrow theological enterprise. I would argue the same for Hegel too, but that's just
1: me. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so just so we don't get too far ahead of the listener who I know probably hasn't read the book, will you actually tell them your synopsis of the Haitian revolution before we start looking into how maybe has the colonial or imperial memory turned it into something very dismissive, so to speak? And then how do the different artistic reworkings that you look at, challenge that and destabilize it and create new things for us?
0: Okay, I mean, sure. So, so much of the Haitian Revolution, you know, which the the dates, you know, if you look in the history books, right? 1791 to 1804 um, in the African diaspora is bound up in the sort of proper names of Toussaint, Dessalines, Christophe. the Haitian Revolution is considered, and I wanted to challenge the sort of logic of first, yes. but you know, I mean, it is a, it initially starts out as an insurrection, right? An insurrection, an insurrection of the enslaved, and it ends in state sovereignty, 1804, right? And that's, and it's the first sort of, you know, independent black republic in the sort of modern world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of notion of, uh, of going from insurrection to state sovereignty, like roughly like 1791 to 1804, makes even like a, you know, a figure that I'm like deeply engaged with, C.L.R. James, when he wrote his play with Paul Robeson in London about the Haitian Revolution that prefigured his history of the black Jacobins, he was really uh, invested in this idea of first, yeah. the first and only successful slave revolt. So the way that success is being deter- is defined there, and I do think it is a, it is a, a victory, right? It is an mm-hmm. accomplishment, and I take sovereignty very seriously. Success equals uh, sovereign state, right? And I, I'm, and I want to like, and then I, what I want to do is sort of extend that, you know, past that. So, and also as a way to think about the fit, um, but the failures or counter-revolutions or rather, that's too strong, uh, the, the problems in revolution as still being within the framework of the revolution, right? So yeah, the dates are sort of 1791, 1804, starts with the slave insurrection, subsequently almost every European power is defeated by the soon to be Haitian you know, nation and, and the armies. Um, you have state power and you know you have state sovereignty granted in 1804 and you have an almost automatic incorporation into like a kind of world debt system Mm -hmm. and and then you know and in a history of you know early 20th century military occupations from the u.s um all kinds of uh, you know incorporation into the world system to the detriment of the nation Mm -hmm. right but um it never seems to go away in what I'm looking at, which is the 20th century imagination. Mm -hmm. And even prior, like, I mean, I have a bit about uh, the way Haiti resonates with the Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. So, and I guess that's the sort of jumping point for all these sort of 20th century, uh, you know, usages. So yeah, I mean, like 1791 to 1804, 1804 culminating in independent statehood, and then you go from democracy to empire, to, you know, to, to monarchies rather. Um, sometimes I wish it was an empire, but then you'd have a sort of globalization of the sort of freedom dreams, to quote Robin Kelly, that animates that revolution. Um, you know, I take state sovereignty, I take self-determination really, really seriously. Um, And to me, yeah, it's important to think about those questions of sovereignty and self-determination from Hegel and the sort of problematic baggage. But I also take it and I also see it as a sort of, um, you know, a a goal of sort of black radical movements. There's are black revolutionary nationalist movements, uh, pan-African movements, uh, current, you know, wars of decolonization, Palestine uh, you know, I take the Irish experience very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. So, like, when I was, that question aspect was not only trying to open up the timeline past 1804, but it was also to say that, like, when we talk about self-determination, pro, con, or ambivalent, like, that self-determination is actually really, really complicated. And I'm trying to figure out what we're talking about. And the way I do that is juxtaposing Black Radical, mainly CLR, James, Stokely Carmichael, others, and Amiri Baraka, Kwame Ture, you know, so Carmichael became Kwame Ture, on the question of Black power and self-determination with Lenin's writing on the Irish question. So, you know, that's, that's where, where I ended up with it. And, you know, it was important because you had, we had talked before, and you had said that what this book does is construct, construct a kind of poesis. Mm-hmm. Um, And I wanted to do that. I wanted to create the kind of universe I wanted to operate in, but I also felt like methodologically, you have to sort of problematize your framework and your terms alongside engaging with your sites of analysis. So it is a little schematic. I mean, I really, if I'm talking about self-determination, if I'm talking about ontological equality, if I'm talking about the importance of the proper name, you know, because so much of that Haitian revolutionary history is you know connected to these individual characters. Um, I want to theorize that constantly as I go along, and the same with tragedy.
1: You yeah, know? the the book is the book's citation politics are really fascinating because you are you you and jump is not the right word. It's more like a, like a weave. You weave from one century tradition discipline very seamlessly over to another in a way that I think. Few people can pull off because it would feel jarring under other conditions, but because you're trying to continuously make arguments that you then trouble, use language that you then complicate, the way that you will shift from one thinker over to another thinker over to a text back over to a thinker is really helpful, I think, for performing the kind of unsettling of, of assumptions that you want, that you think Haiti stands for in this particular like diasporic imaginary, if I'm getting that right.
0: I mean, you know, I'm really interested in narratology. I teach, artists. I teach Homer, Ovid, yeah. and Dante every year at Hunter. So like weaving is really, really important. And I'm really, really interested in boxing, right? So, oh. you know, duck and weave. Sure. And it's also don't and drop your left, you know? Like, right. But I mean, to me, I mean, seriously, to me, that's just dialectical thinking. Yeah. Right? It, um, and it, it, it goes to this point about the question and also about periodization. I mean, you know, I'm, I am not contesting the periodization of what's, you know, how people think about the Haitian Revolution. What I'm saying is that it's much more open than that. I mean, you periodize in order to mess with the periodization
1: right yeah yeah I exactly mean, yeah, right.
0: you know like what is it like you know in order to have a counterform, you need a form so yeah i'm very much like inspired by like jameson's work in terms of periodizing the 60s and and mm-hmm. and, and and also just um you know like someone like robin kelly and his work like freedom dreams you know and, and all i mean if you took all his work as an aggregate whole there's a huge expanse there right mm-hmm. and then and what 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 binds that work is you know a will a willingness to see uh unity within difference right Mm -hmm. there's there's a very different you know protesting the un because of the the assassination of lumumba or 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 you know convening a black power conference are like two very particular moments and they shouldn't be conflated but there's something that they share yeah Right, There's and an I think mm-hmm. the dialectical method allows one to uh, not abdicate the responsibility to, you know, uh, think about the particularity and difference. And that's what I was trying to do, you know. And a part of that is just like saying, "Hey, this works." We're so we we we're really we're throwing out we're not everyone, but a lot of times I think it's it's very uh, popular to evoke to dismiss these sort of older methods and older yeah. sort of. Uh, you know the all kinds of even Cedric Robinson has has said very dismissive um, things about the Black Power ideologues. There, there's a you know talking about Kameh Ture or whatever, and, and my and I understand where he's coming from, but at the same time I'm just like actually no, yeah, like you know I I, I take seriously what Hegel Hegel cautions against the ready made, yeah, and, and to me like taking that kind of weaving care. And disrupting periodization is a way to sort of wage war against the ready-made. And to me, it's like, I don't know, George Jackson in, in Blood, Blood in My Eye says defines people war as improvisation, improvisation and more improvisation. You know, if that's your sort of benchmark for like a radical politic or, you know, a high point for a sort of radical politic, you, you know, improvisation and the ready-made don't really work out so well.
1: Yeah, and, and I think um, I think in addition to sort of that particular universal dialectic, which is one of the major dialectics that keeps showing up in the book, you also have uh, this individual collective dialectic. And I think part of the reason you come to tragedy as sort of like a genre framework for the book is because, on your argument, tragedy, not, not the way that we've kind of watered it down, um, but the way that tragedy has been conceptualized, especially in, in, you know, in, as the like founder of ancient Greek democracy and, you know, that has its problems, but let's just say for the sake of argument, it's inspiring to people and they want, they want to believe that, that if you take that tradition, that tragic tradition of ancient, of Athenian democracy, there's this, there's this contra, this paradox or, or dialectic, I'm not a dialectic person. So I'm trying to make myself use that word because it's the language of the book. Um, but it's not, it's just not my tradition. So it's like hard for me to get my brain around it, but that you have this individual collective. And one of the things that seems to happen in history with the Haitian Revolution is in popular imaginary that it keeps getting given over to the individual, right? That the proper name seems to kind of keep like winning the dialectic, so to speak. But you want to keep bringing it back to like, no, there's always this oscillation of the the individual and the collective that haunts in some cases. Um, But that's what you basically wind up moving into when you start talking about these particular plays the Orson Welles, the island, which was something I didn't know about that was really fascinating, and then also Emperor Jones, and how those plays keep staging the problem of the individual and the collective in this Haitian revolution, not because it was unique to the Haitian revolution, but because it is a place to keep returning to, to keep wondering about that question that cannot ever be solved by any political action ever, right? It's always just going to be another way of trying to solve the problem that will just then become a problem again once more.
0: Yeah, I mean, it definitely is a it's a it's a it's a problem space and an inspirational space. Yes, A myriad of of movements, personalities, and practitioners share in common. And you know, there's this great um, there's this great great quote that's like really important in the book from Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. um, Mm -hmm. Says, comrades, let us read the stagnation where dialect has gradually turned into a logic of the status quo. Mm-hmm. So, to me, like if anything, adaptation, whether it's theatrical or it's the, um, the protocol for political survival, is anything but the status quo, right? Because it's constantly changing, it's constantly evolving, it's constantly foregrounding this dance between identity and difference. Um, so, yeah. And how do you and- see
1: that? Yeah, and how do you see that working out in the text that you chose for, in chapter two?
0: Um, like in terms of like the, the Jones and the...
1: Well, I think Jones is really illustrative. Let's start with that one. And then, cause I, the Nazism stuff with Orson Welles was really fascinating. But yeah, just in terms of how Emperor Jones stages the relationship of Jones to like the people, right? Okay. And, and the dreamscape and how they have to use dreams to kind of give voice to the dialectical tensions that are happening within the individual, even when they seem like the figurehead of the movement.
0: Right, so that is like the Haitian Revolutionary Encounters chapter, and it's on O'Neill, Sergei Eisenstein, Orson Welles. Orson Welles in the kind of This Is America radio broadcast for BAI did a a program on Haiti and the Haitian Revolution. Sergei Eisenstein, as part of his film curriculum at the Moscow Film Institute, spent a whole like year orchestrating a scene of Dessalines jumping out of a window fleeing like counterinsurgents right and then the haitian revolution or rather the uh haitian the emperor jones is is extremely um in dialogue with 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 u.s military presence and occupation in in haiti and 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 there's this really interesting kind of regressive progressive tension in the play where on one hand like o'neill is like has these sort of totally like kind of racialist stock characteristics, uh, and then on another hand, there is such a radical dynamism in the play that is like objectively anti-colonialist that like undermines those things. And the turn to expressionism, you know, as that play progresses, it gets weirder and weirder and weirder. And as Brutus Jones deteriorates, things get weirder and weirder. So the sort of the, the, the specters that get haunted in that play you know uh you know while, while he he's fleeing this insurrection in his kingdom are like the specters of of the legacy of, of bondage in the United States and you know co- coerced violent uh, uh genocide of Africans to you know for as a source of you know accumulation for the country so like It's a very, very weird, weird acknowledgement. And also because um, the sort of specters in the Emperor Jones are like, are very fleeting and expressionist and dreamlike, it seemed to me that it presented itself with a theory about how to tell history without the sort of hubris of thinking that you can capture the most horrible thing, how it really, really is. Um, Yeah, so Mm -hmm. for me, I mean, and that's, and and, you know, why I called it the latent textual prophetic is because I think a lot of what O'Neill does to talk about, um, you know, history and specifically genocidal history as an expressionist trace is done through the stage directions Mm -hmm. and done through the, you know, the aspects of playcraft that aren't, you know, dialogue and aren't like immediately, you know, plot conflict related. Um, right. You know, and, and it's just like, and then, you know, and then that other thing gets constantly repeated. I mean, you know, in Abel is King of New York, you know, Frank mm. White, you know, Christopher Walken, right before, right when he gets out of jail, like 10 minutes after the Plaza Motel shower, you know, he and his attorney are watching a modern adaptation at Radio City Musical of Emperor Jones. About are they?
1: I didn't know. that.
0: brutality. <laughs> yeah. -huh yeah, so I mean it never it never goes away, right? And then, um you know, Count of Monte Cristo was really important for and, and the sort of Alexander Dumas' haitian connection Haitian revolution mm-hmm. connection was extremely important to me, and you know O'Neill's father played that role of Edmond right. Dantes like um, damn near a million times, so it was really uh it was a really a generative example to think about like the work of repetition like. What yeah. would it be like to perform, you know, a million times bondage, escape, and then transcendence? So, I mean, yeah, and, and also, of course, you know, it's like uh, Genet, the Blacks, like you have the, the work itself with its sort of problematic, you know, but also generative use of abstraction. But then you have the sort of people who perform the work, right? So, you know, I mean, Robeson is an extremely important figure for this, for this book. I mean, he performed in C.L.R. James's initial play version of the Haitian Revolution. Um, I'm really in dialogue with Hazel Carby's uh, work on a, on a series of um, photographs of Robeson. And, you know, he was in uh, both the film and then the play version. Uh, of the O'Neill at, at different times and puts his own imprint uh, uh, on, on O'Neill's representations. And just generally, I mean, I guess you only see this when I talk about Kwame Ture and self-determination as it relates to Lenin's um, writing on Irish self-determination. Like I always like to put like Irish self-determination and black liberation in dialogue. So, I was kind of tangentially interested in that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not to tokenize O'Neill, but I I think that's important and that's something that, you know, I think people should pay more attention to. But, uh, you know, I said the supernaturalist aesthetic of O'Neill brings like history back online and specifically Mm -hmm. an American legacy of coercion, enslavement, and failed reparation. And it's precisely because it refuses to show that history in a, what they call a a peephole realism, keyhole realism, right? He refuses to sort of say that you can just use a kind of a socialist realism aesthetic to represent these things. I mean, I always think about it in terms of Beloved, like Mm -hmm. why does Beloved, you know, to say it works well is an understatement as a novel, but then you work, you, you develop these sort of, aphorias and, and problems when it is brought to the screen. I mean, it, it seems to me that, you know, you have a problem when you have to, uh, when you have to uh, imagine a pictorial representation of the ghost, mm-hmm. you know, and- it,
1: Well, and that, it, and that comes it, again a little bit later in the book when you talk about the the whipping of the slave off screen, so- maybe that's a little bit ahead of us because at this because then after you wrap up that chapter you start getting into the central piece uh, where you put where you look at the plays of CLR James so the, the 1937 version and then later in the 60s the Black Jacobins and you talk about the different staging of that and how that brings once again another attempt to reconcile this individual collective problem that just seems to keep showing up in these reimaginings of the Haitian revolution. And one of the things you talk about in these two chapters, I mean, you talk about so much, but it's this really interesting scene where they are on screen with you know the white plantation owner and they're having these conversations about whether if a freed slave can lead well, couldn't they lead the, couldn't they lead white men and how it creates this paradox of freedom, but offstage stage is the whipping of the slave. And you make this argument that it's sort of important to do it that way rather than given to like yeah like this voyeuristic let's watch the suffering on camera and but that just really reinforces that that suffering is not really that awful because we can just show it indiscriminately
0: yeah so, i mean also i mean i think for you know for clr james's play um and glissant's play like they they want it to be a, a also a laboratory of ideas mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and ideas not that, that don't bypass the brutality and the violence, but try to, try to think it. So, I mean, you know, people are very, very careful with, 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 with sort of spectacle, you know, and this is a problem. So, like, I was really involved with, um, and, you know, I wish I was more involved, but like one, of, probably like one of the first, you know, political projects I was involved with early on as an undergrad was anti-death penalty stuff and stuff around political prisoners, mm. specifically mm. like Black Liberation Movement, Puerto Rican Liberation Movement, American Indian Movement prisoners. And you know, people are still like, I, you know, we have comrades still working very, very hard to try to get like to Mumia Abu Jamal out of jail, right? Yeah. And I remember like there was a Village Voice cover which had Mumia on the cover and it had like I think it was these uh you know lethal injection you know images like you know and it was meant to sort of stir awareness around the case, um, mm. but it was like this this spectacle of this pictorial mm. representation that like I don't know worked against its purposes right because like how do you bring that to bear in in, in a drawing? You know, and I think that James and Gleason and and to a, to a certain extent, uh, Eugene O'Neill are like really, really, really cognizant of, mm-hmm. of, of, of that, um, and and that you know of, of the, the and it also that has to do with some you know this commitment to abstraction. You know that one of the interesting things about like the Hegel and Haiti dialogue that you know Susan Bokmorse talks about and others prior is that, you, you know, you run the risk uh, of, of creating a kind of two sides of a ledger where like Saint-Domingue and Haiti, you know, stands in for like radical insurgent action in the real world. And then this other stuff turns in is, is, is about thought. Yeah. And, and, and this is why like Hamlet becomes so important and Malcolm X's deliberation about Hamlet at Oxford Union becomes so important to me. Because all of this work, the, the Glissant play, the CLR, James thing, yeah, they're about action. They're about revolution, right? But they're also about like revolutionary thinking. And 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 I think one of the um one of the ways in which, you know, and this is why it was really important for me to look a lot at the archive of reviews of James's play mm-hmm. in London, he was panned, right? And, and part, partially, like, I just feel like they didn't understand what was going on. Like, they were looking for a sort of arc of action, but they didn't concede that, like, uh, you know, debate was intellectual, you know. Yeah. Intellectual discourse, debating about moving a piano, right? Mm-hmm. On. Well,
1: yeah, i the like, um, yeah. Know,
0: how it relates to, like, bondage or liberty, it is really important for the kind of questions that these writers and thinkers and activists are trying to raise.
1: Well, and I love that you raised that because so I'm like always, like I'm a communication person, right? So you, 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 you lay out this scene in the play and I guess we're page 93 now, if anybody's, I don't know why anyone, we haven't, listened looking at the book during the interview, but I'm just, it's, it's the academic training in me. And so you're looking at, um, you're looking at the play and there's a scene right that you'd mentioned about where one character says uh, all this all this goddamn furniture to be moved this is work for slaves and then the other character says but they ain't got no more slaves and the other character says all right no slaves but um but that's kind of the problem because if i'm free and i'm a soldier like why am i moving this piano like why can't the like why can't the the bad rich you know why can't why can't the people we overthrew move the piano what's the point of being free and me still moving a piano and you use this scene to kind of point out that the dialogue in that scene foreshadows the tragic degeneration of the revolutionary process because Toussaint, who is the ostensibly like the leader of the Haitian revolution until you know, he's not anymore, uh, he's, he's failed to communicate to his base, right? And so his base doesn't understand why they're still moving pianos if the revolution has been quote unquote successful. And then that, that disconnect between the leadership and the base becomes this, like this structuring problematic as you explore the rest of the development of the play and this concept of Black political struggle in general, because you're never going to have a perfect balance of leadership and masses. It's just, it it continuously becomes this site of reinvention. So I thought that was a really helpful scene, the scene with the piano. And then the other scene that's really helpful is the scene called the purging of Mo, ah, oh, I can never pronounce it. Moise, 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 yeah. So, um, the purging of Moise, and again, once again, replaying that that dialectic between individual and collective. And so, can you you want to tell us about that particular part, and then maybe any other parts of this play that you think yeah. are really transformative?
0: No, sure. Um, I think it's important to note in terms of the Tucson and and you know, and and you know, James laments that he doesn't, you know, go on horseback every night to communicate with the sort of different cells of his base. Right. And and yeah, I mean, you could think of that as a sort of degeneration of the revolutionary process, but along the lines of like what I'm interested in and why I'm interested in accessing the sort of protocols and the ideas around tragedy is I kind of, I want to um, insist that the, the so-called de- degeneration of the revolutionary process is still part of the revolutionary process.
1: Right, absolutely, yeah. 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 yeah.
0: So, so you know, uh, uh, Toussaint's uh, strategic miscalculations or Dessalines' excesses, like these these things are like, these things are not foreclosing the revolution. You just have to sort of think through them. And, and, yeah. and you know, staging Toussaint killing his nephew, right? Uh, as James says, he was now afraid of the contact between a revolutionary army and the people, an infallible sign of revolutionary degeneration. And he purges Moyes, because Moyes is sort of his left flank. Um, there's a scholar named Carolyn Fick, who's the great scholar of the Haitian revolution she makes this very clear. She says, it's Moyes and not Toussaint nor even Dessalines who still bore scars of the whip and horrible mm-hmm. measures of his own life as a slave who embodied the aspirations and needs of the rural masses. More than that, he also believed in their economic and social legitimacy. If he did not ostensibly organize the insurrection, he nevertheless wholly supported it and not mm-hmm. to Toussaint. So to me, like this notion of the binary Toussaint, Dessalines, Toussaint, Moyes, It's a thought template. It's like a laboratory for writers like C.L.R. James to talk about how difficult it is to make revolution and the difficulties characteristic of that. It's not uh, so much, you know, I mean, you see this in in, in a lot of Marxist, like especially like sectarian groups, like where there's a, a series of proper names and you line up, behind them like it's like a team or something like i'm a trying yeah. to minimize because i know that there's deep 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 uh commitments and struggles and 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 violence behind these things but it's like trotsky is i'm a stalinist you know i was in an organization that was marxist leninist now thought. i mean it, it always is driven by the proper name but it always is sort of acknowledged or assumed sometimes tacitly sometimes you know uh allowed like that 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 is an umbrella for a larger you know repertoire of movements thought historical experience uh theoretical assumptions right um what i was really interested in in terms of moyes was that he has this fidelity to the the ideas of the haitian revolution um and he has this sort of rigidity um and you know, it's often talked about in terms of his sense of timing. Um, But mm. I wanted to think about it in terms of, like, scholarship around the Cathars, where the Cathars are not, like, her, like, they don't commit heresy by introducing, like, a different belief system. They commit heresy by being a kind of, have this overabundance of fidelity to the belief system, right? So, like, if in Catholicism, the clergy need to abstain from sexual relations, um, the Cathars will abstain from bathing to not arouse themselves, right? So the idea of like heresy being about like an excess of principles or a surplus of commitment, not of, uh, introducing something from without to challenge the coherence of a doctrine so, you know, I was just interested in how one, you know, deals with someone who has that fidelity to the revolution um, that challenges the notions of timelessness with this sort of strategic concern and, like, the balance act of trying to get all these different, you know, bases together to wage, you know, insurrection. Right? So, like, it's not that I... I, I <laughs> It's not that I'm like, Toussaint was right. He should have killed his nephew. I don't no, think, right. but Jane sets it up so that it's not about taking sides. It's it's about um, recognizing questions and problems.
1: Right. You know, yeah, like, and, and it, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, in context of, like, contemporary Black movements because, not even Black, but, like, Occupy Wall Street, Anonymous, Black Lives Matter, they seem to want to give themselves over to the opposite side of the dialectic, which is to have no proper name and no, or, or or to have the names of the victims be the proper name under which the movement organizes. And as a rhetorician who's like very committed to aporias and dialectics is like the way things work. I, you're just, you know, you're kind of just moving from the individualist side of the binary to the other side, but you're not asking the question of articulation between leader and collective and i think that is going to inhibit the movement in the long run because I mean, you know, it, politically it, they seem to politically yeah they just seem to be wanting to just go, to, to avoid the dialectic yeah by saying we're leaderless and it's like yeah. well so i don't know again i you know I'm, I'm not the leader of the movement there have to be leaders behind the scenes there are certainly originators um but when i think about this dialectic being staged about the Haitian revolution, it is interesting to me that I don't see it being restaged, at least in the popular discourse about those movements.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, you know, David Gilbert, I think it's in his memoir, or maybe it's a collection of papers, A Political Prisoner. Um, he, you know, with Weather Underground and worked with the sort of Black Liberation Movement, he talks about like, I think it's, it's a student, you know, as a student at Columbia, there are these kind of anti-hierarchical uh, mm-hmm. models for kind of radical organizing you know um and then what happens is, is that the sort of the policing becomes internalized yeah you know? and, and it and it creates this uh, another set of i mean it's, it's which is not to you know slight the endeavor but it it doesn't no. solve the problem it just shifts the yes. problem you know i just wanted to say like just uh, as a sort of marxist digression i always just thought in terms of like speculative thinking like, so James is responsible and his associates for, for translating uh, um, this French Marxist named uh, Boris Souverine, you know, 1895 to 1984, who publishes in 1985 uh, a book on Stalin, um, mm. you know, and, and James translates it. And, you know, he spent some time, you know, in, like, Trotskyist formations, and then he broke from that. Um, But I always wondered, like, I mean, I think Deutscher wrote his book in English. I might not be correct. But I always wondered if, you know, there's this Trotskyist writer named, you know, Isaac Deutscher, who wrote this book on Stalin. And I always wondered, like, as per your point about leaders and and, and abandoning the dialectic, you know, even though Deutscher is just, like, you know, a real, real... adherent of, of Trotsky, it's such a uh, it's a, such a dialectical book, his work on Stalin. Yeah. And it, it doesn't rush to, you know, sort of easy condemnation, but it obviously as a, a Trotsky a historian, it's not a Lionization either. And I always mm-hmm. wondered like what would the discussions be around James and his milieu if like instead of souverain's Stalin book, it was Isaac Deutscher's, and again, Isaac Deutscher, as a Trotskyist historian and radical intellectual, is no fan of, you know, Joseph Stalin. But it, it's just right. a little thing. I, it's an interesting twist in history that that's their, you know, their biographical um, mm-hmm. anchor as that's it relates to that specific thing. I mean, also real world struggles they, they were having. It wasn't just academic, yeah. but.
1: Well, and it makes me think of this quote. I'm glad I'm glad you had a digression because I needed time to find it. Where you talk in the chapter that the second chapter that's that's voted to James and the Black Jacobins, where um you say, so this is James writing about Toussaint, and he says, I think this is James writing about Toussaint. Yeah, um, Toussaint did not make the revolution. It was the revolution that made Toussaint, and that even is not the whole truth. Yeah. <laughs> And I was like, that's such a great way to sum up the, the, just the kind of, I don't want to say like circuity or tautology, but that's kind of what it is. Not in the sense of being frustrating, but in the sense of just it being a never ending negotiation of that individual collective problematic at the heart of political organization.
0: And also, I mean, this is the, you know, except for like Parandello or whatever, like, you know, this is one of the reasons why I have to turn to drama becomes important because you Mm. need characters, you need proper names usually. You know, you need a loci to think about the sort of mass, individual, particular, universal. You know, every aspect of the dialectic needs a sort of uh, materialization if you're going to think about staging. Staging is a materialization of how to arrange individuals and aggregates in some sort of interrelationship. So to me, like, I mean, I don't even, to me, theater is like a kind of perfect medium. I mean, one of the works mm-hmm. that's really important here is, you know, obviously the black Jacobins is sort of pride in place, but also Raymond Williams' modern tragedy and, and, you know, arguments that James and Williams had, you know, or more James had vis-a-vis uh, Williams. But um, this is really, really important because not only does Williams want to really open up tragedy for its, all of its political saliency, he wants to trouble, this sort of elitism which makes tragedy be the property of like classicists and the way we use it in a university and, and mm-hmm. um, disparage the way people just use tragedy in a colloquial usage to signify like a terrible thing that happened, right? And there's a sort of mass impetus just in his etymological um, queering, if you will. Between the mm-hmm. sort of high and low culture, that I thought was really, really interesting, very, very Jamesian, you know, uh, someone I, I really respect and, and admire and just love as as a thinker and a person, the Caribbean intellectual Paget Henry. He always mm-hmm. talks about the fact that the uh, you know the masses might not like read the text that we read, but they write their texts, but they write their texts mm-hmm. in the street. You know, so then it becomes this question of like, well, how do we read that text? You know, you kind of have to be in the place where it's being written, you know?
1: Well, and one thing I did think about throughout this book is like, what what does a non, what is democratizing tragedy as a genre look like? Because later when you talk about Lauren Hansberry, which is the last major chapter of the book, you talk about this idea of like, um, sort of like another dialectic between it's, it's really the, really class focused because it's like kind of like how the pursuit of pleasure of the, the pleasures of the marketplace right the pleasures of ca- consumer capitalism become become staged as like are they actual political advancements or not and you make the point that like Hansberry's argument isn't to say oh wanting wanting capitalist success is bad it's that we need to democratize the pursuit of pleasure as something everyone gets to do the problem right now is only some people get to do it. And I think tragedy is really similar. It's like, how do you democratize people being able to think their political struggle in a tragic genre? And I thought your arguments about returning to the returning the chorus to the stage were really important. Not maybe the way that you put an actual chorus on a stage, right? That's too literal. But just like what would it look like for for just like James did, and all the many ways that the that the artist activists in the book, how did they put put the chorus back in? as kind of the dialectical other to the individual actor on the stage. And it made me think about like, you know, what would that look like for actual struggles in our moment to put the chorus back in in ways that have been evacuated. Yeah, so I, I, mean, that, I don't know if you want to say anything else about the chorus or the tragedy in James because we've, we've barely touched it. Well, I want to right say right something there, about there.
0: Hansberry in terms of what you were saying. Um, you know, I look at uh, Les Blancs, which is her Mm -hmm. sort of that Right, that's
1: the play in this chapter. Yeah,
0: Yeah, and I look at a a fragment or a couple of scenes of her um, opera on Toussaint Louverture. So that's the sort of, um, and then I look a little bit about her dialogue with Jean Genet as it relates to Genet's work with George Jackson. Um, There's this great Hansberry quote, if I may, She says, Negroes must concern themselves with every single means of struggle, legal, illegal, passive, active, violent, and nonviolent. They must harass, debate, petition, give money to court struggles, sit in, lie down, strike, boycott, sting him, spray on steps, and shoot from their windows when the racists come cruising through their communities. At the same time, you know, writing about Bertolt Brecht's Mother Courage, where you see these different ways in which the the pressures of war and necessity, act on the character, the protagonist. Rex, I mean, Williams writes, the point is not what we feel about Mother Courage's lively opportunism. It is what we see in the action of its results. By enacting a genuine consequence, Wreck raises a central question to a new level, both dramatically and intellectually. The question then is no longer are they good people, the decision taken before or after the play, nor is it really, what should they have done? It is brilliantly both. What are they doing and what is this doing to them? And it seemed to me that in that initial quote with Hansberry about like the capaciousness of strategies, she also implements that in her plays, wherein in Les Blanc and also in her fragments of opera of Toussaint Louverture, everyone in the plantation system and also other people within the larger world system um, uh, broadly speaking outside Santo Domingo, represented in her plays. And, and she's, she's exploding, she's attempting to explode the sort of colonial matrix, right? She's, uh, her plays are committed to transcending the sort of imperialist domination, right? But she, she, she wants to show how the structures are impacting upon the characters, not the idea that the, the characters' shortcomings are perpetuating the structures so to me it's like in a way like yeah i'm interested in in constantly accruing constantly transcending constantly um challenging and expanding the problematic and the question with the way that this book is constructed but lorraine to end with lorraine's hands very and then with malcolm x and and the coda is perfect because it just seems like um Hansberry's uh, capaciousness, both in her embrace of strategy, but also in the voices that she puts on stage and also less the, the multiplicity of voices, but her emphasis on structure as much as character is a kind of culmination of all the sort of mm. dialectical movement that precedes her chapter. So to yeah, me- Yeah, I, thought, like I thought her at the end love.
1: was a great move. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, she's the most important person on some level in the book because she kind of is this distillation. Or not her, but those two works I look at are the kind of distillation of everything that precedes it, at least in the analysis, which is selective. It's not a work about coverage. You know, I don't really believe in that. I think that's a mystification. As if you
1: could. As if if there was any book that was going to provide the definitive coverage of of this. Yeah, no, Hensbury coming toward the end was excellent for that reason. And also because it felt more, it felt contemporary. And so I think it strengthens, I think it strengthens the argument that no matter how far in the future we move away chronologically from the Haitian revolution, we really don't move away from it. And by we, I mean, not me, because (laughs) it's not really my struggle, but, but political thinkers of the political never really move that far away from it. Even if like time quote unquote does.
0: Yeah. I mean, and there's countless things, you know, there are other things that I, I could have turned to. Um, There mm-hmm. were symphonies. There's, oh, sure. You know, the, I mean, I have a little bit of Mingus, but I could have turned to Duke Ellington. I mean, there's there's Jacob mm-hmm. Lawrence's uh, paintings. There's, um, I mean, there's so much. Um, yeah. You know, there's uh, turns to, um, well, I mean, again, there's just, there's so much that, that one could do and so much that was, you know, uh, I, and again, I, I, you know, for me, like coverage, origins, and ends are just all lies. So, like,
1: right. yeah, that. yeah. Um, which actually brings me to so I'd love to hear more about anything else you want to say about what we haven't covered, and then the Malcolm X code at the end. But also, I wanted to respond to something that uh, Slivoy Zizek said in a piece. That he wrote about your book for the London Review of Books in terms of that question of origins about. Oh, I did the
0: LA Review of Books.
1: LA Review of Books. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, sorry.
0: That's yeah okay. LA Review of Books. Um, and I it. will
1: link that in the show notes. But so, do you want me to do that, or do you want to talk sure. about the? the sure. Comment? Okay. So there's a. This is a great piece. That, so it's called a prophetic vision of Hades past, and it's about your book, and it's a response to it. And um, there's a lot in here, much of which repeats some of the themes we've talked about Hegelian dialectics, et cetera. But he says that if so, Zizek says if he's understanding you, Jeremy Glick, correctly, then you uh, are in a then your book resembles a position advanced by Malcolm X, and he goes on to describe Malcolm X's biography of sort of adopting and then unadopting right the Nation of Islam, and what he says is um, what this means is that in the struggle for black emancipation, one should leave behind the lament for the loss of authentic African roots. Glick's book, uh, the true loss is the loss of the loss itself. When a black African is enslaved and torn out of his roots, he does not only lose these roots, he must also realize that he never had these roots. Now, here's my little nitpick with that. It feels very non-dialectical to me in the sense of like, oh, we just need to abandon the search for roots because what the Haitian book feels like is the argument that 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 these aesthetic performances of the political are reimaginings of maybe not roots but certainly uh, there's like another word for roots is the wrong thing but but this doesn't feel like an abandonment of roots to me it feels like opening up and expanding a search for cultural predecessors yeah or revolutionary predecessors right so i felt like he took that a little bit too far to the we are rootless argument, whereas this felt more like more dialectical in the sense that almost like making new roots, but maybe a different metaphor, like a new impulse or a new aesthetic. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word roots, but that felt a little, not quite like what you were saying to me. Close. Yeah. There's a
0: couple of issues with that, that I think are, are really interesting. I mean, first of all, it's really funny that you pointed to that because I actually corresponded with, with a friend of mine. About about that point, because uh, Zizek attributes the X to, to Malcolm when the mm-hmm. X comes from the Nation of Islam, and I think that's really important. When I was that's true. Yeah. So when I was mm-hmm. writing my friend about it, I she, she had this amazing response. She said the Nation did put on the X. It was the most brilliant thing it ever did. It stages all the absences as it lays claim to all the infinite tomorrows. So just this idea of. Staging an absence, which is not like pretending it's not there, and or, or for that matter, presence, and then laying claim to all the infinite tomorrows. Um, that is much more dialectical, right, than to say that you know you're you're here, and then you break with the formation and do something else, and go into more kind of revolutionary black nationalism and pan Africanism.
1: Mm-hmm. Then,
0: then you you know, I think you're a hundred percent right. I mean. What really captures this sort of dialectical play is um, the way the this idea of um, like from engaging with Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks, and and his mention Mm -hmm. uh, of the Haitian Revolution as it relates to um, the the Vietnamese uh, insurrection, and you know, um, there's this really incredible uh, discussion in Fanon write about, um, about uh, that, that turns on a different translation choices in black skin, white Mask between the Markman and the Philcox. There's a line uh, where it's, it's is, is the word that they're um,
1: mm-hmm. determining
0: differently. Where Fanon says, I am a man and what I have to recapture is the whole past of the world. I'm not responsible solely for the revolt in Santo Domingo. And then uh Philcox translate the most recent translation I am a man and I have to rework the world's past from the very beginning I'm not responsible for the slave revolt in Saint-Domingue so mm. like to me like the dialectic is this notion of recapture and rework
1: yeah you know? recapture and rework is really good
0: yeah and also it's like you know Reprong also has to do with um Well, recapture relates to the etymological root of septio, which is sort of concept, right? And that gets us back Mm. to, you know, my Hegelian interest in terms of what thought really does, what philosophical thought does, what radical thought does is it creates concepts. But also, you know, you know, Fanon also says it's not because the Indo-Chinese discovered a culture of their own that they revolted. Quite simply, this was because it became possible for them to breathe in more than one sense of the word. And so reprong also means recapture, rework, but it also means, like, catch your breath. And I was interested mm. in the sort of performative backstory of Fanon dictating black skin, white masks and the whole notion of the respiratory system, the body as a as limit. Um, but also, you know, that's a process book, right? So mm-hmm. there, Fanon is also, you know, talking about the the work of, like, the Sheikh Anton Diop's work on African antiquity, there's not an animosity to pass there. It's just that he's not, he, there's just an animosity to being, you know, ossified into that or frozen into that. Right,
1: path. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And,
0: and also, he's just more, more interested in, 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 in waging, you know, full on struggle against the empires. And this is why, you know, the Indo Chinese example is put in relationship. And you know, and it's funny. I mean, it's not funny, but it's interesting too. Because Robeson does the same thing, right? When Robeson writes a not his play with James, but when he writes a, a more essayistic piece, he's talking about the Vietnamese struggle in tandem with with the uh, with the Haitian revolution. So there's this mm-hmm. two kind of turns to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was a really interesting point. I mean, I know what he was trying to do, and I appreciate it. But I, I do think- too we needed, it's really important, like, to, you know, to not, you know, to, to, to make it really clear that the notion of the X comes from there, it comes from the nation, right? And, and I think it is, like, perfectly dialectical, in, in terms of how you really helpful how you frame, uh the, the, you know, we're not, tr- you know, the origin, and again, it goes back to where we began, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of, like, an educational itinerary, You know, I was taking Marxism classes and classes about the decolonization movements of East Africa as it relates to, like, language.
1: Mm -hmm. At the
0: same time, you know, reading, they came before Columbus with Ivan Vincertema. So it's literally the interplay that you so concisely, you know, pointed to was, like, actually, like, my school life and what I was spending the most time thinking about. I mean, Malcolm is really important because initially, you know, initially it was because, you know, in the, um, in the dissertation, his, his engagement with Hamlet is so important. Mm -hmm. Um, He, at a moment in the Oxford Union address, uh, Malcolm says, you know, I was thinking about Hamlet. He was in doubt of something, you know, and he quotes, uh, he quotes, you know, whether is noble, you know, the sort of, take arms against the sea of struggle and therefore ending it and he doesn't stutter because like malcolm x doesn't stutter but there's this interesting pause yeah and the way i read it was this you know he's making this overture right after he quotes Hamley, he said i for one will join with anyone i don't care what color you are as long as you're willing to you know bring down this miserable system i mean i'm paraphrasing right but um yeah you know, that pause is really, really interesting to me. And it also relates to your point about the dialectic because, you know, as, as, as a, a, a friend of mine, Kamal Franklin, elegantly writes, and a lot of people have written about it, Barack has written about this, Malcolm's legacy, Arnold Rampersand writes, the great literary critic talks about how Malcolm is like a cipher for everyone to like read their political agenda into. Mm-hmm.
1: And so when Malcolm
0: is making this overture of like really like, you know, extending, uh, his definition of maybe perhaps not comradeship, but certainly uh, to use a term for now, allyship, right? There's that like stumbling where he's almost anticipating, it's almost like a hedge against people incorporating him into their political uh, ready-mades, you know? And, and every, and you know, there are a lot of people who do that. Like, there's a whole tradition of socialist books that you know, want to extricate Alckham's black revolutionary nationalism, right? And then maybe to a lesser extent, there are certain kind of cultural studies that um, want to downplay where he was going in terms of anti-capitalism, right? And, you know, I think that one of the, um, the things that you get from, you know, trying to do literary criticism well, is you have, yeah, you have your frameworks, right? but you have to generate your framework from the particularity of the case that you're looking at and not like allow the case you're looking at to like fit your ready-mades. So it seemed to me in that moment where Malcolm, you know, pauses in in quoting this, you know, question and and pointing Hamlet's dilemma, not as like a a symptom of his like, you know, petty bourgeois angst avant lettre, but like that he literally was in doubt in something and that doubt can have a place in revolutionary deliberation. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because like Malcolm X is like way more generous to Hamlet, the character and his dilemma than like hundreds of years of Shakespeare commentary.
1: Yeah. His, the, his, I love his response, right? He, he reads the Hamlet and he reads the dilemma between suffer the slings and arrows or take up arms. And he says, and I go for that. It's like yeah i i get it i whether whether this was some kind of major critique of the petty bourgeois it, it, either way right he's reimagining hamlet so yeah. i really thought without without um without edifying it right it, it is that he's very casual in his is sort of like oh there was this passage i mean i like how casually he raises hamlet because instead of revering him he raises him as fodder to be used uh for rethinking new thoughts for new times and i just I just found his use of Hamlet, I mean, as a, as a, as an orator, he's fabulous. And you you do an interesting thing, too, because you, you raise all the points you just raised, and then you say, instead of claiming Malcolm, let us examine Malcolm claiming another. And of course, you already have examined that when Malcolm claims Hamlet, but in fact, then you slip to Spinoza. So you really make him move a lot in this coda. Yeah. Well, you don't
0: not let him settle Dave in as part. a... Yeah, like, and there's this amazing part in the autobiography where he talks about, in the save chapter, he talks about Spinoza, uh, a black Spanish Jew, and he talks about uh, Spinoza's excommunication from his synagogue. And, you know, I, through discussion with friends and, and my own research, um, and also through, uh, you know, Negri talks about this and his work on Spinoza, you know, when Spinoza, I mean, so... So, you know, one of the work of tragedy is to, to to sort of square the circle where you can think about um structural oppression and individual suffering in the same frame, right? And so Spinoza is confronting a friend who had lost a child, right? And I talk about Du Bois uh, uh, of the passing of the firstborn. And in the dream in which he's trying to conf- uh, uh, it's letter 17 in Spinoza's corpus where he's trying to confront a, a friend. Um, he has this figure that, that, that um, visits him. And it, it turns out that the, what Spinoza problematically refers to as the black scabby Brazilian is a leader uh, of the sort of, um, he, he kind of has the, the structural position of the Toussaint Louvator in, in relationship to, to Brazil, mm. right? Um, so you know, Enrique Diaz was a kind of a, you know wages sort of uh, slave rebellion, right? And it w- and and also it, it put like the excommunication of Spinoza in this like whole other light, right? Because the synagogue that Spinoza, I mean, ex- where Spinoza was executed was also like a, a really a significant shareholder in terms of the the, the ventures that were exporting slaves from the place where Enrique Diaz was, was uprising. So it, it, I just thought it was like really interesting that, you know, in terms of my uh, interest in preserving the dialectic by thinking about um, markers and also proper names, that mm-hmm. even after the communi- you know, this is a discussion about excommunication. I thought it was really, really interesting that Malcolm refuses to not refer to Spinoza still as not just a Jew, but a black Spanish Jew. And also it was just historically bizarre that like in comforting a friend about the tragic death of his young child, he is haunted by the slave rebellion leader who poses the biggest um, militant challenge to the people who just excommunicated him. I know. You know, so like, I was just like, this is totally, um kind of perfect right yeah he defies he defies the clerical authority by reinstating spinoza's religious membership by way of description the proper name spinoza mm-hmm. comma a black spanish jew and uh, his hamlet insists on reckoning with radical actuality as a matter of deliberation and choice whereas spinoza insists on radical opening generated by way of speculative possibility so mm-hmm. you know i mean yeah, and, 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 and in a way, like, that's like, um, they make sense together because I, I saw, there's so much sort of, there's commentary in the way that Malcolm is using Hamlet and there's a kind of generosity. Um, there's, and again, I, he is, you know, more generous than like 500 years of criticism of that work.
1: Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, you yeah. Yeah, and then you actually have a lovely closing line to the conclusion of the book, and of course, it's not the closing closing line because you have a little coda at the end. But um, your last line of the book proper is a reason to be optimistic colon we have yet to reach intermission, which I just thought was a great it's a great closing line for a book, especially this particular book. And it you know, and it I appreciated it because it it reflects back to the beginning on this concept of would you just say re. Reclaim and renegotiate. Oh shoot! I should have written it down. It was really good.
0: Yeah. Re remember, reclaim, and then also right, right. The, um, Rework and reclaim, right?
1: Rework and yeah, yeah, and reclaim and rework. rework and yeah.
0: Recapture. excuse recapture, me. Yeah. Rework and mm-hmm. recapture, yeah. but also like the ten, you know, the tertiary definition is like shortness of breath, right? And then there's mm-hmm. a whole kind of um, problem of archive and 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 homonyms, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I mean, you know, there's a whole discussion that, you know, critics talk about when, when when Fanon says the black man is comparison and black skin, white mask, if you hear the if you hear the word, you know, in the Antillean variant, it's doing more critical different critical work than
1: oh you know, that's interesting. In the
0: French or the English. So in question the question of the archive, the going back to the O'Neill about like can you really, you know show it as it was right right there's there's something um there's something ephemeral there's there's something that escapes in in trying to pin down how fanon is using comparison here when we we recognize the fact that there's there's a homonym at play Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean and, and then that like is used to think about all the ways in which these plays and these works of art like, have really, really sophisticated ways of thinking about their archive and thinking about um, realism and thinking about how to mobilize artistic protocols to like move along a radical struggle, but not like compromising it in a sort of a reification that can never really capture how brutal the thing it is.
1: Yeah, right.
0: You know? So, it's, it's almost like a kind of psychoanalytic. Protocol. It's, I mean, it's just this constant deferral of, mm-hmm. of a sense of, you know, coverage, of a sense of completion, of a sense of, of, of you know, everything is in movement, everything is, is in motion, yeah. you know, here. And, and this is why, you know, it's really important for me to accept and burst open the periodization and challenged notion of, of, of first, even though I, I really do, you know, think state sovereignty, revolutionary state sovereignty, rather it it, is quite important
1: yeah yeah well again i think the book performs the argument exceptionally well it's sort of like derrida gla and other types of books where the margins perform the footnotes except far less jarring so i really enjoyed it it um it, it is challenging to the point of transformative which i think is exactly where this book needs to be so I can't thank you enough for all the hard work you. you put in. I mean, it's, it's really hard to talk book.
0: about. you made it easy. I hope this was, I hope it was somewhat. It creative. was great.
1: Do you want to add anything else? I mean, there's lots of things we didn't talk about. Other, no, other I mean, highlights. I don't but- know.
0: I'm working. My next book is called Coriolanus Against Liberalism and Lumumba and Pan-Africanist Laws. And I won't go into it now, but it just, it tries to think Coriolanus in the iterations of Plutarch, Shakespeare. Rec and Ray Fines alongside Lumumba in his iterations of Maya Angelou, Raoul Peck, Intozake mm-hmm. Shange, uh, Fanong, and uh NA
1: Well, I look forward to it. <laughs> I would like to be the, I would like to be the first reader when you're ready to show pages.
0: People thought, like, uh, I was trying to describe Black Radical Tragic before I wrote it. They were like, this is crazy. So then I just, uh, if it worked out, I would double down. So I'm writing a book on Coriolanus and the which is, yeah, well,
1: you know, if you you can do it once, you can do the harder version of whatever this is, I think. You've proven your chops.